morning, Ante. Good morning, Oliver. I don't know what's going on in your life. I hardly see you. And if I see you, you're running through the floors. Um, something big must have happened in the last couple of days. What is it? Yes, well, we are having a lot of changes in the university and specifically in our department. Unfortunately, one of my dearest colleagues and friends is leaving Andrews, uh, Dr. John Peckham, who has been, who is also my first door neighbor, but a, a wonderful uh, person, scholar. It is just a tremendous loss. I think, you know, if you look even the our faith community, and specifically our discipline, the discipline that I work in, in systematic theology, I would reckon that he's probably the premier scholar, perhaps even in hmm. our church, in terms of his reach, uh, the way, he, the amount of publishing he's doing with very reputable publishing houses. He's regularly being mentioned by other people in other contexts outside of our faith community. So he is really a, a wonderful scholar and friend and teacher, much beloved by students. And so he him leaving is a, a tremendous loss to our department, and I would say also the SEM University. That has, of course, created a lot of ripple effects, as you can imagine. So we are scrambling and trying to see how to proceed from now. So that has been a major change for us, for sure. Yeah, I can only imagine what a loss this is. I can, I actually know a couple of students who particularly went to the seminary because of him. They wanted to learn at his feet and sit in his classes. They took everything he was he was teaching and now his absence that is not just a big loss to us as a seminary and as a university but students i think uh, students who really wanted to learn from him i are now have to be drawn to their to his books uh, I, I bet but there's so much more happening when you teach compared to when you write or when you read a book of somebody who is teaching? Of course, you know, especially I'm thinking of, you know, of our PhD students, doctoral students, you always want to do your work with a reputable scholar. It adds not just to your knowledge, but also it's, it's a good feeling to have a person like John Peckham and the fact that he's leaving. It's not, it's not, it's like a you know, like a soccer club, club or football club. You know, you go there as a player because you really like the coach, the manager. And then the moment you arrive, the person leaves. And then like, what did I do? Kind of a thing. So right. some people might have this feeling and we will, of course, do the best as professors to try to address this. And we won't be able to fill the hole, but uh, try to serve and help our students as much as possible. But it's a tremendous loss. There's no denying that. Yeah. Could you perhaps just... Uh, quickly in a minute or so explain what do you do now as a department so there is a professor who leaves and you need to hire a new professor how's this process looking like it's always a complicated process in any university setting because it involves first of all you need to have the approval to start a search process and that is not a given in the past we would have departures and then we had to wait and sometimes those faculty positions they can just disappear as has happened to many departments but in our case we cannot function without replacing uh, John and so we got an approval and we immediately started putting together a search committee which has quite a number of people outside of our department because it's always good for other people also to give input and mm -hmm. then we have a job posting and then we start a search. We are beginning interviews. And in our case, uh, it's really not a perfunctory exercise. We actually do not have anyone in mind. It is not a mm -hmm. rigged process. We are actually starting mm -hmm. from scratch. 
are completely open and we will see how everything will end up. We hope to have someone in place for spring, for the spring semester, but we will see how it goes. Yeah, yeah. And then I think you will identify two, three final candidates and those you bring to the dean and then the dean makes the final decision by listening to the department, right? That's exactly it. So in the, uh, in the seminary, it is the dean who ends up picking the person. So that is why there's no way that I could ever promise anything to anyone even yeah. as a chair, even if I end up chairing the committee, we are actually constituting the committee this next Monday. So by the time the episode is out, we might already have our search committee working. But even then, uh, it is just chairing, just managing, and then you give two or three names to the dean, and then he makes the final choice. Yeah, very good, very good. Well, Anse, we are speaking about an educational environment here right now. And today's topic is on education in the sense of how to learn, how to learn best, how to memorize, what strategies, what techniques are you particularly using. And I must confess, you know, whenever we talk, I feel very inferior to, to you. The, the, you seem to be a walking library. You can pull any author, any book and bring quotes into the conversations that, that I have heard once a while ago, but forgot about them again. So you somehow seem to be having everything you learned or much of what you learned in the last 20, 30, 40 years present to your mind. And I often wonder, how does he do this? What trick does he play? Does he have a strategy? Does he have a ritual that allows him to perform at that level that you perform? And this is not just me saying this, Ante. I have heard this being said by so many others that they are impressed in how you can pull all these sources, complex thoughts, systems of thinking together as you speak and lecture and converse with uh, people that surround you. So my question, my starting question for you would be, when you look back to your childhood, how did you prepare for exams? Did you prepare for exams in a similar way as you preparing for, let's say, learning challenges today? Did you develop? But uh, let me let me start asking you, how did you prepare for exams as a child? Well, thank you very much for your kind words. And I will refrain from trying to rebut them. I will just take them at face value because, you know, it's, it's funny when people say these things and I at all don't, don't see that at all in my life. But that's okay. <laughs> Thank you for these nice words. Well, I think if we, if I think about my childhood, um, I don't know, Oliver. It's probably a mixture of just who we are in terms of personality and interests and, and all of that. And that kind of then, I don't know, perhaps this is, going, this is going to be a good exercise for me to unpack this. I have no idea why I retain some of these things. I should mention to our audience and to you, and you might be surprised, that actually as a child, I suffered from uh, ADHD, uh, attention deficit disorder. And hmm. I still, I'm, I'm still struggling with that. There are reasons why that is the case, certain family dynamics that I won't go into. But as a child, actually, you know, I would, you ask me about strategies and I was not a good student. In elementary school and high school, I actually wasn't that good of a student. As a matter of fact, I remember I would, in elementary school, I would open a book and literally after 10 minutes, my eyes would, be, would begin to tear up and I would start to yawn. And I would, I would just look at letters on the page and nothing would get in. I think I must have had some issues for sure. So for me, then the only way in which I could have overcome, in, in which I was able to overcome my, this, this, this attention deficit for the lack of a better word, was when I had the fear of exams. Right. So I mm -hmm. was a chronic procrastinator because I needed the fear of deadlines to get focused. Yeah. Uh, 
I, I think that's one aspect. I think later on, once I got a bit older and I started studying what I really like, that deficit, attention deficit, certainly went by the wayside quite a bit more. Mm -hmm. I was able to focus and became a better student. I think so that is one fact. Let me also mention another fact or something that you can probably relate to. I think both of us are similar. We are similar in one regard, I believe, from what I can gather from you. You mentioned yourself being a hyper-focused person. I'm like that. I can mm -hmm. immerse myself in anything, uh, any sport, anything. And, and so I have all of these interests, you know, and I can actually chronicle them, you know, over the years, like things that I get got involved into and learning everything. I don't know about how axes are being made or how ultra marathon, and I'm not even a runner. And I know like everything about ultra marathon just from, I'm just fascinated by that. I, I immerse myself into that knowledge. So I had this, as a child, I had this very deep interest in inquisitiveness and not to take too much time, but just to give an example, like the greatest joy for me as a child was when my parents would leave home. And then I had this great adventure of opening all the closets, taking out all the clothes, opening up all the books, like really investigating and searching and trying to discover things that I've never seen before. So I think there was this definitely this element of inquisitiveness and, and hyper-focus that I had as a child that would sort of offset a little bit the problem with attention and attention deficit that I experienced, especially in elementary schooling and then also high school a little bit less, but certainly in those early, early times. So in yeah. terms of strategy for learning, I did not have much strategy. I don't know. In the beginning, for sure, it was not very focused, I have to admit. I mean, that's interesting that you are describing this in this way, because it seems that strategy is kind of a secondary order, while interest and inquisitiveness, inquisitiveness, inquisitiveness. Okay, that's interesting that you say it and put it in this way, because it seems that strategy was secondary order, but that inquisitiveness and um, interest into something actually drove your strategy. So the strategy was almost unconscious. You, you just did what happens when you are interested and sucked into something. Is, is that correct? Uh, actually not. No, actually, I was very much interested, became interested in, in strategies a bit later when I became more like a college student later on. Mm -hmm. And I think you might recall how we, in one of our early episodes, we talked about this interest in systems and causality and how things, this kind of engineering background, all of my family is a family of engineers, everyone, and I mentioned that, from my yeah. grandfather, uncles, like everyone, father, all of that. So I definitely have this interest in systems and how things work and how they connect. And I think that I have, if anyone would ask me, like, what makes you really happy or what is kind of your strength, I would say organization. I very mm -hmm. much like to organize things. I like to find systems and procedures and algorithms of knowledge acquisition or actually it's very much the opposite of what you said. And so from the very beginning, even when everything was analog and manual, we didn't have computers. I, I, I go way back, I tried to find ways of indexing knowledge in some way so I can access it <laughs> later. I was always taking quotations. I had special notebooks. I would read them, review them. I would try to utilize them. I would try to share them. So yeah, for sure, not, not as a young child necessarily, but by the time I came to college, I very much became 
interested in, well, how can I, that what I learned, how can I use it? How can I remember that? How can I recall it? And so that was very much part of how I started learning as a student. So uh, let, let me paint a picture for me. So I'm seeing this 18-year-old Ante um, stand, uh, being in his first college year and needing to read a book, let's say, of Wolfram Pannenberg on systematic theology, which is very difficult to read. It's very technical. It's uh, quite exhaustive in its language. Uh, it has complex syntax structures. So you, your task is now to read Wolf, uh, Wolfram Pannenberg. How, how did you do this? So this 19, 18, 19-year-old 19 Ante in his first college year, what, what was on your table while you were reading? I think if I look back, I think initially it was... I actually have exactly the color of the notebooks in my mind. I know how they looked like. Hmm. And initially, it was really taking uh, quotations. I would write them down. I would copy them. And then very often, I would add my reflections. Uh, for a good portion of my life, I was doing journaling uh, on and off. Sometimes years mm -hmm. would even pass and I wouldn't do it. And then I go into it for a couple of months. It's kind of an on and off thing. But very often, what I read would be utilized in my journal. Right? So I would yeah. even turn it into prayers. Sometimes my journals would be almost like meditative prayers, but I would still include what I've learned. Lord, you know, I've read this about this and it really challenged me and kind of... So I had these processes, whether they were just taking quotations in a notebook and which, uh, you know, would then later be kind of utilized in some way in either in a sermon or or when I talk to people. And this is the, another element that I think helped me very much with retaining information. And that is sharing. I find mm -hmm. the greatest joy in sharing. So when I find something, I want to immediately convey mm -hmm. this or read this to someone. And I believe it is this act of sharing and recording and utilization in one way or another that really perhaps contributed to this retention. As you know, there was this strategy is a very old strategy. You know, many people, even in Middle Ages, had these commonplace books, right? In which they yeah. would, they were not journals, but they would write tidbits, you know, mm -hmm. quotations, mm -hmm. a poem, mm -hmm. something they've done, something they've read. And people would actually go through this regularly. Th these commonplace books, they were mnemonic devices to mm -hmm. remember and and people had way better memories back then than what we have today. So they would then go through these and kind of review them. And I think that is subconsciously, that is how I used to do it back then. And I think it helped me. Yeah. I know, I'm mean, obviously you're on Facebook, I'm on Facebook, and I once in a while look at your page. I'm not actually a heavy Facebook user, um, but uh, once in a while on at the end of the week, I, I browse a little bit through some of the Facebook pages. And what I usually see on your page is that on Sabbath, there's usually a post. So because you were sitting in the church and you were listening to a sermon, and sometimes you actually share a photo of your journal, of, of your little booklet that you use in order to do the handwriting notes. And what I realize is that most of what these pictures show is actually text, right? You, you actually write down stuff. Um, if you would look at my notebooks that uh, I created, or actually I didn't really use notebooks, but sheets of papers, it's more graphics. It's more lines and categories and boxes. And um, so, but it seems then when I'm listening to you that you are very much um, triggered by words and quotations. Is that true? Very much, very much. I love language, which is 
actually fascinating given that I don't consider myself a good writer and the fact that I, as I said before, I'm very self-conscious that I don't speak language, proper language in any of the languages I know and I have this, whatever, some of these verbal tics and it might not come across as being someone who loves language, but I love language and I love words, I love to learn words. It gives me great joy to learn words and it, I very much enjoy writing things down. That is very mm-hmm. important to me, that is how I process information. Now, of course, nowadays, there are so many different ways in which this can be done. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me also share something, and then I'll come back to what I just wanted yeah. to share about the technology. Some, it, it's been now some years ago, I remember, and I don't know even if it was Dr. Dukan who said this, or someone told me this about Dr. Dukan. I cannot remember now. Mm-hmm. But I think someone told me about him, that he spends every day some time to review old knowledge, right? He goes in his memory, he goes back, he might open an old notebook and reviews old knowledge. And that very much impacted uh, Hmm. because I think that memory is what crafts our identity. Uh, Long-term memory is what enables creativity and thinking and making connections. You cannot have creativity, right? Without long-term memory. And we can in the future talk about it. What is it about some of these contemporary effects on memory formation that social media and new technologies have. That is a different topic. We can explore this. But I believe memory is is significant. So that being the case, what I now have, these notes, even when I take notes, I usually always take a photo of them and scan them in some way and put Mm -hmm. them in this software that I have and I tag them. Like all my notes are tagged in some way. What do we mean by tag? What software do you use? I'm using Evernote. Okay. And so let's say I have a sermon and I put the notes down. Then I would, if it's written down, often I type, sometimes I write. I think the different levels of creativity that come from writing, actual physical mm-hmm. writing, I really believe that. But then I take a photo and then what I do, I tag it. So let's say pastor, our pastor, our minister has a sermon on compassion or on love. I would scan it, put it in, and I have different categories of information that I have, and then I will tag it. I will put down compassion and empathy. And very often I'll put a I will put a tag of something that is not thematic, but I would put a a tag of a word that doesn't perhaps, you know, appear in that message, but but that message or those notes would be very useful if I were to explore this other topic. And then it's fascinating, you know, I have thousands and thousands of journal entries, articles, notes, and then I do either for my research or then I have these memory refreshing exercises, I just go and then I click a tag, let's say Mm -hmm. empathy, and then, you know, or let's say attention. And then I have a quote from the Bible, from my meditation, uh, there's a, a journal entry, there's a quote from Martin Heidegger, there's a quote from contemporary studies in psychology. And for me, this collage, right, of knowledge Mm -hmm. and how Mm -hmm. all of these bits and pieces interact is for me absolutely fascinating and I enjoy doing that. So there's a spontaneous element of memory retention, but there's also something that I do intentionally in terms of to in terms of reviewing old bits of knowledge, not just knowledge, but also experiences and contexts in which I have acquired this particular bit of information. I I don't have such a sophisticated system, actually. So you you inspire me to 
get started with this. I have OneNote, it's kind of a, the Microsoft version of Evernote uh, that I use quite extensively, but I'm not storing all my knowledge in, in, in OneNote. And there are other software platforms out there that people use like Notion that uh, yes. allows you to kind of create this web of, of knowledge. I'll say a little bit more about this uh, later as we continue the conversation. But what I see what works um, well for me is actually I need to put what I have learned into my own words. So to me personally, quotes don't work that well, I think. If, if, I, if I use, if I can summarize a chapter or a book into my words, then it sticks. So and often what happens is that I write an article or even if it's not published, but just for myself, I have to put it together in my own words. And once that happens, then it's my own. So that, that, then it's actually uh, entering the route of memorization into the deep sources, so to say, of, of memory tension. But if I don't write it down or if I don't speak about it, it's lost because I don't have a system like like you have where you're like a settled customer where you, where you organize your knowledge. Um, so I have to talk, I have to share, and I have to put it into my own words. So you could say these are the two strategies that have worked for me and that I'm relying on um, because I don't have other sophisticated systems. Uh, number one, teach what I learn. Number two, um, rephrase what I have read into my own words. So th this is something that's so essential to my own memory retention. Yeah, and I, and I think this is also a large part of what I'm doing. I mean, it's rarely that I read something and that what I read does not pop up in one of my lectures or on some presentation. I try to yeah. utilize it. Now, I think if I would just take a quotation and just write it down and just leave it somewhere, I would completely forget it. But I think, remember, mm -hmm. when I use these quotes, and sometimes I have... I have books on Kindle, sometimes I have PDFs, sometimes I just type it out. The act of typing it out and then I usually highlight a sentence and then put it in some words in bold. And then I usually come back to these quotations numerous times. They're not just lying somewhere. I don't have photographic memory. I would not remember these things, but I encounter them. I come back to them. Yep. And then just subconsciously, I do this. And it's really fascinating how people in the past, even without these kind of technologies, people realized the value of this. I remember Jonathan Edwards um, noted mm -hmm. uh, probably the most important American theologian. And I used to be very much into Jonathan Edwards for a number of years because I deeply appreciated his um, theological and philosophical aesthetics. He's just a brilliant, brilliant mind. But he was a pastor, right? He was a minister in early 18th century. And he would go on these long horse rides. And obviously, these are people who had tremendous memories. And if I can just make a digression here. Uh, so uh, sometimes I on, on Sabbath, I read his sermons. Mm -hmm. And I ask myself, who are these people who are able to listen to these sermons? that were going on for an hour, hour and a half, extremely didactic. Today, I'm going to talk about this topic. I'm going to divide mm -hmm. it in three points. Point I, one, two, three. Let us deal with point 1A, 1B. I have a hard time reading it and understanding what he's saying. I have to underline and stop. And you think yep. about it, these were ordinary 
town people who were listening to these sermons. This is just a, a side comment. Yeah. In any case, yeah. fascinating yeah. Yeah. to me. It's absolutely fascinating how we sometimes, how we have diminished cognitively in many, many ways from previous generations. But in any case, so he would go on these long uh, horse rides. That's what people were doing and a tremendous amount of time. There's no distraction. You're just alone with your thoughts. And he would have these pieces of paper and make notes and then he would pin them inside in his coat. So when he would come home and take off the coat, there would be all these tiny, you know, pieces of paper. And then he had really, for his time, a very sophisticated way of indexing them. He -hmm. called them miscellaneous. And he would then index them and he would later find them. So this is something that people were doing, have been doing for for centuries. And I think it's very important for knowledge acquisition retaining in whatever way you do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you triggered a little bit uh, uh, something in me when you were saying how memory retention is declining throughout the years, Some, something like that you just said. I um, I would like to push back a bit uh, on, on this. Well, in general, I think you're right, but I think it's also the way how we present has changed quite a bit because probably I've never listened to a sermon audio recorded by um, by many of the old great you know pastors and and speakers but some of these old some of the the, the representatives of this old generation are still among us think for example about Eugen Drewermann right or uh, Kardinal Ratzinger so when they preach it's very monotonous They are usually just standing in behind, you know, a pulpit. Um, their hands are not moving. Their head is not moving. Their eyes don't show any excitement. They just speak. And when they speak, actually, it's so pure that you could basically just print it off and, and uh, publish it as a book. But what is interesting to me is that when you, for example, look at lectures that Eugen Drewermann, who is now, I, I guess, in his 80s, still lecturing, is giving in public spaces you see all generations of all walks of life from young to uh, to old and he lectures like you're saying about one and a half hours no break no nothing monotonous constant talk but when i listen to him and i think this must be the this must be true to many of the the people who are in the in the room they are drawn into the mind so they they are not confused by bodily movements somehow there is the skill that And they usually don't speak fast. They speak, speak quite slow, quite monotonous. They draw you into the inner world of the speaker. You almost, you almost tend to close your own eyes to just be in this inner room, in this mental space that he's exploring with you. And you get into this flow state or, or hyper-focus state. And it's, it's almost impossible to fall asleep. So you, you're so in it. And I think this is still available to to a large population of us but it depends on what's the topic and also how much of an incentive is actually the speech itself giving you to lock yourself into the mind of, of another i i'm not sure whether there are studies out there that that analyze what's actually happening in these speeches and how it's possible that people even though it's monotone even though there is no you know sound waves exciting sound waves happening even though there is no bodily engagement obviously taking place that people are still able to be locked into this flow state hyper-focused and, and enjoy the ride. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure whether this is just a, 
on the learner side, some, something that has digressed, or whether it's something also that has changed on the speaker side of, of things. This is an excellent point you are making, and I would have to think about it. And I think that we have initially broached the possibility of dealing with the topic of attention and attentiveness and the lack of attention, perhaps next time or in one of our future episodes. So I won't go into that. Sure. And so we can, I need to think about this. I think the fact that, you know, you will find people who are able to do this is not really a population study. You know, there are always people mm-hmm. who have these capacities and it might be people who have been brought up before, let's say, the early 2000s who have retained some of these abilities. But I can, as we will talk about it in a future episode, I see a marked difference between the students of today and students of uh, 20 years ago or 17, 18 years ago when I started mm-hmm. teaching. Mm-hmm. When I started teaching exactly, you know, in 2007, I believe that the iPhone is coming out. Uh, Facebook is coming out around that time. Twitter is coming around that time. And when I see what, what, what happened in, the, in this period since then, I see a marked difference in terms of people's ability to focus and retain informa- information, engage in linear thinking. But that is a different topic. So it's yeah, interesting sure. what you're saying. I have to think about it, and I would have to think about how prevalent it is, right? I'm thinking, let's say, recently I saw a syllabus that W.H. Auden used at the University of Michigan, I think the one in Ann Arbor. When you see the syllabus, what people did in two semesters, and perhaps I can bring it mm-hmm. next time and just read it off. A couple of Shakespeare books, this and this and this and this. I mean, there's no, there's no way you could assign anything close to that in the contemporary educational context. There's absolutely no way. Think about our sermon. You say that people can listen. But I have also found many instances, if you don't give people a, a story every two or three minutes, the people mm-hmm. get so quickly bored mm-hmm. with sermons and young mm-hmm. people get bored. So I don't know if what you're saying is this, is this perhaps what you're describing a reaction that people have against superficiality, that they find this almost therapeutic, the absence of fluff and overstimulation. Mm-hmm. And there's, there could be that. But then I would also ask how prevalent that is and whether that really matches what we see, let's say, either sure. in our communities of faith or educational institutions. So that would be a good conversation. I have to think about it. Let me let me think about it till next time. But you might yeah. ha- might have a good uh, point. Uh, that is could be could be the case. So a challenge that I'm having, and I know we are not going into let's say the techniques for memory retention and memory deconstruction as it as it happens in these last twenty years, as you're indicating. But a challenge that I'm having, I would like to address it now already, and that is when I'm teaching Hebrew, for example. So subjects that require a lot of memorization, vocab, grammar, paradigms, and and so on. Um, I find myself often puzzled by the fact that after my first class in, for example, a beginner's Hebrew class, students would come to me, and not just one or two, but often it's a crowd of five to ten people, come to me and say, um, Oliver, how is there a technique to memorize vocab? So is there a technique to actually memorize paradigms. Basically, what they are saying is, is there a technique to memorize, you you could say. And I'm often puzzled by that question because I don't know what to answer. I I assume that um, the techniques of memorization have been part of their life experience and not just part of their schooling experience, but even as their child, as as a child who's still playing, who's preschooled, memorization is already such an elementary part of life. So when you 
are teaching your classes, what do you say? Do, do, you, do you encounter this too when that a student comes to you and so, hey, Ante, you know, how is there a certain technique? Do you have tips for me to memorize actually the contents of this book, Sources of the Self or any other work um, of a book that you are going to analyze in class? Do, do you find this, that students approach you with this type of question? They do. And this is such an excellent point that are rising, Oliver. And perhaps we can There are two challenges to that, I think, that we are facing. The one is the, the question of technique, and the other one is the question of usefulness. Should we even be doing that? Mm. And I think in recent years, there has been a very strong, rightly so, I would say, to a large degree, a push against rot memorization, right? It used to be in the past, people would memorize. I know how many things I, I had to memorize. And so people are reacting to this, you know, people, oh, let's, let's not have lectures, let's have discussions and conversations, which as a student, I absolutely dislike, but we can talk about it, why that was the case. In any case, so it's all about that. And people think that memorization is kind of stupidification. I don't know if that word even exists. Like it's <laughs> really something against, and I am I really would like to push uh, against that and because that relates now to this idea of, of art. For centuries, people have understood the importance of technique, uh, the importance of memorization, sorry. And actually, when you look in ancient thought, and also especially also in the Renaissance, you have all of these, uh, the literature, right? The Ars Memorativa, right? The art of memory. And, and you can read them. These, these are instruction manuals that people like Cicero and Quintilian, and later on in the Middle Ages, people were kind of using them and repurposing them. They had very sophisticated strategies for memorization. Because remember the Roman senators, Rhetoric was the most important art that you had mm -hmm. to have in the Roman Empire. Speech was everything. That's why Augustine wants to be a professor of rhetoric, right? And, and these people, when they were speaking, they were quoting at length, right? Yeah. They were quoting this and quoting that. They retained it. So they had these very sophisticated ways. And, and these strategies of memorization, they've become almost like circus tricks, By, by the time of 19th and 20th century. And it is actually fascinating when you go to some of these, you know, pe you know people do this for competitions, right? Mm -hmm. They have the task, you have to memorize this poem in two minutes. And there are many, many tricks actually and techniques that people can use to memorize uh, and, and to memorize this great amount of information that, that you have. I mean, a book that I read some time ago, Moonwalking with, with Einstein, really talks about this guy who had a very bad memory, right? It was not anything particular, but as a journalist, he became fascinated by, by these competitions where people are memorizing these decks of cards in a very short time, a deck yeah. of cards in a very short time, or memorizing, memorizing poems. And then you realize, no, no, these people are using, they're actually our strategies. You know, having a mind palace, for instance, you know, I... I, I have these different rooms in my mind and sometimes, you know, I have visualized them and I have a special room for this and in this room there's this particular shelf and on that shelf there are these books and I visualize myself taking the book and opening the page. Yep. And we may, So there are actually strategies or, for instance, people creating, uh, like, the more bizarre narrative you create in mind, the better you will remember things, yeah, right? Yeah. Whatever, whatever, right? And True. so there are ways yep. of actually doing it, and people should be exploring some of these techniques because I think just reading something, you will not memorize. And by the way, if I just 
can add one more thing here. I think what I see the big mistake that people make in studying, and I'm surprised that even seminarians have that mistake. They are neglecting, for instance, the important of, importance of active recall, right? I see them mm-hmm. you know, they're down, mm-hmm. down there in the comments and they have this book open, the book's open, and now they're reading. And now you have the illusion of knowing the material when in right. fact you have absolutely no idea. Uh, that you don't know it. So you should close yep. it, right? You should close it. And then you try to recall and, okay, what does it say? What is it and all of this? And so there are actually ways. There are actually ways to memory and not only techniques, but it is a capacity that we have perhaps allowed to go by the waysides because we've lost the capacity for memorization. So that is a muscle that can actually be trained, not overnight, but over a period of time for sure. Yeah, yeah. Two things, uh, perhaps, to comment on what you were saying. Uh, first thing is, in my Hebrew classes, for example, I see this very often, um, and that is similar to what you're describing with people reading a book, and then they think they're actually doing the homework, right? They actually, they actually are knowing what they're doing. I always tell my students, don't go to tutoring, because when you're going to tutoring, I found that actually we have done statistics uh, in our department. Most students who go to tutoring fail the class. Interesting. So, and and it puzzled me because I think there's obviously somebody who is driven to take more um, exposure to Hebrew, for example, and and get taught again by by somebody else. So there must be some sort of willingness to suffer or some some sort of willingness to invest more time into this. But the likelihood that this person is going to fail is higher. Why? Right? Why? And I've come to the following conclusion, namely. Students, they have questions. They sit in my class, right? They don't understand what I was teaching in, in one way or another. And now they go to tutor, tutoring. And now the tutor, we usually have very good tutors, is able to explain them what they did not understand in class. And then it makes aha, right? This aha moment for the student. And the student goes home and thinks he got it. <laughs> so and next day, when he's tested on this particular item, it's lost. He's not there. It's He's completely blocked. He doesn't know what it is. So, And what happens, I think, is that's what I'm telling my students always. If you go to tutoring, there's nothing wrong with it. But don't believe in the illusion that you have understood it just because the tutor helped you to understand it. So in fact, you have exactly. not understood anything yet. You're right. just repeating what somebody else said. And if you're not able to repeat it in your own words, exactly. and if you're not able to explain it by your own argumentative routes, it's not learned. It's absent. So ironically, and this is my, my, my second point on this, is that it seems to me that we inform ourselves to death, right? I mean, we have all these this information out there, and much of it is quality information. So we inform ourselves to death, but we don't memorize. And if you don't memorize, there are two things I think that happens. Namely, one, you constantly live in the stress of you being unable. So you're not actually mature. You're not having a clue. So, and this is such a depressing experience for humankind. So, and the second one is you're actually destroying bridges of community building. So when when you think, mm, I have still this romantic memory, like when I think I was 11 or 12 years old, and my father, he was a pastor and uh, we had to move into a new district. And so there was kind of this farewell event taking place at one of the members' yards in, in Bavaria. Um, and I, I might have even mentioned this here in one of our episodes. And so we had the Sabbath, the Sabbath closing ritual, right? There, were, there was a devotion and then there was a prayer and then there was singing. And I think they started probably singing at around seven, eight, eight o'clock. 
and there was no single hymn in anybody's hand. We had different musicians there, a viol violinists, flutes, trumpets. I mean, imagine the old good times, right? <laughs> so a community of perhaps 50, 60 people who was gathered there, and they were singing one song after the other, often just the first strophes, because not everybody knew all strophes, but probably by the end they have sang 30, 40 songs, all by mind. So all out of memory. So it was such a community building experience that, that we could not have today anymore for, for different reasons. So exposing yourself to information might be counterproductive. It might actually decrease your self-esteem and it might actually destroy important glues or, or undermine the gluing effect that memory can bring to the building of communities, to the building of love and trust and relationships and uh, connecting historical events out of the past with other people. Yeah, I think you are so correct. And I think, again, I hope to be able to unpack this a bit more next time. But I think this sure. kind of exposure to information and information overload that people say, very often it's not an overload that people feel. It's actually a, a tremendous release of dopamine. You know, when you go on these uh, web binges and you expose yourself to all of these bits of information and you have the illusion that somehow you are acquiring knowledge, when in fact none of that sinks in. It's, sinks in. it's really a stimulation. Because if you have to recall this later on, you're able, not able to do that. And I think, and coming back to my point of this, you know, this kind of perhaps knowing less, but knowing it deeply, enabling you to make these connections. And you're right, I'm thinking of my father who went to this classical education. I don't know, he went to high school, I would imagine in the 60s, early 60s. And when I talked to him and, and he is reciting by memory these long epic poems, right? Mm -hmm. And then we talk about it. I mean, who, who think about your children or think about high schoolers that we know today, right? Who is coming out of, at least in the US, who is coming out of the, the schooling and being able to recite at length any texts, right? It's, it's not actually happening because we are so against memor memorization and we, and we have taken this wrong, useless memorization of repetition of facts, let's say of historical facts, and we don't see any value of that. And then we've completely have done uh, done with, with kind of people, critical memorization as such. Think about this idea. And I've listened to this some time ago. When you think about different disciplines, right? You, people usually say that if you have not, you know, bre uh, solved some mathematical problem, right, by the age of 25 or 30, or if you mm -hmm. are uh, in physics, it's over, you know. And it's true, right, because these are the peak powers of our thinking, right? And usually if people don't have some breakthrough, it's not going to happen. But that's not like that in all sciences. In other sciences, let's say in pharmaceutical sciences, it is actually only people when they come in their later career that they're able to be uh, able to produce significant work. Because that work is not about brilliance of, or, you know, of uh, some formula, right? In understanding the formula or creating, solving a, a proof, mathematical proof. It is about being able to use disparate pieces of information and putting them together. It is this kind of collective uh, thinking, if I can put it that way, or, yeah. or integrative thinking that actually puts kind of uh, develops the, the science or develops kind of new insights and all of that. So memory is uh, quite important. And perhaps one way that we can think about it, right, is also in our, in our Christian lives. I think about 
I am a huge fan, and I don't do it often enough, but a huge fan of memorization of scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I don't know if you've ever noticed this, like when you memorize scripture and you know this, and you're able to recall these verses, I would challenge when I was a pastor and minister, I would challenge, I would give people some passages to memorize, challenge them, like some basic passages on discipleship that really capture what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And I would say, hey, memorize Colossians 3, 1 to 17 and, and repeat it and, mm-hmm. and say it. And then what I've, I don't know if you noticed this, then once you memorize these verses, they actually continue their work in you yeah. even when you do not think about them. It's yep. fascinating, right? Almost yep. like subconsciously, they continue the formative work. And so and so there's tremendous power in memorization generally, but certainly in memorization of Scripture. And I do believe that the older generation was doing this. Like my mom knows so many passages. Mm-hmm. And so without going into any higher education, I mean, their minds are sharp. They know things. They, they have this repository of information in difficult moments of tragedy or when they have to share a word of witness or when. I mean, they can just recall. <laughs> I just snipped with my finger, but that's fine. They can kind yeah. of rec- recall these things uh, easily, and they—it's uh, amazing. So I—I'm f- firmly. I think memorization should be part of any sort of discipleship program for for anyone. I think it's very, very beneficial. Beautiful. I, I remember my grandma. You know, she died. She passed away when she was ninety-six. On her bathbed, deathbed, she was still working on memorizing a psalm. There you go. So that was just part of her yes. yeah, routine. Yes. So, um, yeah. Well, the, this community building aspect of, of memorization is for my family and the Glanz family such a beautiful thing. So when, you know, we are, it's Friday afternoon and we clean the house and then often, you know, the girls and I, we sing songs that, that we just learned by, by heart. Um, we, we sing all, stro- the girls sing all strophes of, I think they're like, Eight strophes of Lent Cohen's Hallelujah, right? Mm-hmm. Now I've heard there was a secret chord yeah, that yeah. David <laughs> played and it pleased the Lord, and they sing it all. Or we sing, you know, uh, von Rammstein, I am living in America, <laughs> or we are living in America. So, but it's so community building because we all actually, we all do this. Uh, another example of this in school, similar to what you described about the high school education of your uh, grandfather, I'm, uh, of your father, we had to learn entire. Po- um, poems. We had to learn entire sections, paragraphs of Immanuel Kant and Hegel and Marx, and and uh, of, of course some of the some of the songs that Schubert wrote, uh, like Die Winterreise, and so. But what happened is it was not just something we all had to learn, but we also utilized them in funny contexts, like when let's say somebody says something stupid or, or didn't get something, then we would say something like, I, I now need to read it because I only know it in German by by heart, but we would say something. Ante, let's say Ante would say something stupid. Would say, Ante, don't you know enlightenment is the departure of a person from its self-inflicted immaturity? Immaturity <laughs> is the inability to make use of one's own reason without the direction of another. You know, we would quote these things to, to just ridicule the other. So it was also part of, a, uh, not just of a romantic, such, so to say, fabric, but also of the fabric of joy and, and the fabric of uh, not taking ourselves too serious. Well, and another thing I would like to ask you or bring up. Uh, Can I yes, just jump in here for a second before we continue? Yeah, sure. Um, and I think I think it's very very important that when we 
think about memory that we don't think simply in terms of memorization. I just memorization is just one aspect. I think what you have mentioned here is partially memorization is partially recollection of life. Right, I think that mm-hmm. it is impossible if if our identity is inseparable from the story of our life, right, On, or stories of our lives, or from the narratives, like the idea of the narrative self. Then it is impossible to talk about the story of our life without having memories about ourselves. And this yeah. is the utmost tragedy people have: dementia, Alzheimer's, is the forgetting of these these memories um, about themselves and others. And I think what's going to make heaven beautiful is that we are going to be able to process our memories in the light of this new reality of the kingdom of God. So we will still have me- memories are absolutely essential. So I think what mm-hmm. I always like to do. Uh, I like to look at old photos. I like to recall these things and events and people. And sometimes uh, I lie in my bed or I walk, take a walk and I think, okay, let me think, let me think, thank people who have profoundly impacted me in the first 10 years of my life. And just developing a sense of, hmm. so it's, hmm. it's memory. You, you, you remember your life and the richness of your life, but more importantly, you remember how God was leading you, even when you were not aware at all that he was leading or, or people who, who, who have perhaps forgotten or you don't think about them anymore that much have profoundly shaped you as a person and they should be remembered. And that is, I mean, you know as an Old Testament scholar, right, how very important mm-hmm. these altars and stones of remembrance, how important they were. These, these are all mnemonic devices for Israel to remember all these amazing things that that God has done for them. And, and yeah. there was a sense that community formation and community faithfulness and worship was absolutely inseparable from these exercises and ability to remember uh, what God has done and what they have experienced, what God has done for them and what they've experienced. So I think that there's, there's more than simply being able to recite things. It is able to, uh, it is important, memory is important to enrich our lives and be grateful and uh, build community as you had it. Sorry, I just wanted to yeah. insert that yeah. element. It's very important for me to stress that. L- let me add another element to this. And, and that is that memory can have a commitment function. Can uh, Memory can also be aesthetics. So if, if I think about um, Karen and I, my wife and I getting married, you know, you have to do these vows and these testimonies in front of the congregation. And I remember when I, I was writing on my vow, I was thinking, okay, so why do I actually marry Karen? And why am I going to make this commitment that I will stick to her until death departs us? So why is that? And then you go through the popular reasons. I mean, she's the most beautiful. Well, she's actually not. So there's always a more beautiful girl out, out there. So is that because she is such an intelligent person? Well, actually not. There's always a more intelligent person out there. So, so you kind of go through these typical categories that are on your wish list when, when a teenager targets you know, a partner. So it needs to be this, that, and, and so on. And realize that none of these bullets, uh, bullet points actually is able to stand the test of time. So everything decays. So then why am I going to make this commitment? And I realized the only thing that Karen has that nobody else has, which drives me into this relationship is memory. So the memories that we have built up, they are standing like, you know, the pillars of these old ancient palaces. So nobody can remove them. They, they will stay there. And cultivating that memory and continue to build new memories is the perhaps one of the few only reasons 
that you can fall back on, that, that you can trust because they are there. They don't go anywhere. And often when we have been in a marriage crisis and we have, in several, we have been in several ones, this is something we can pull up and say, hey, we have brought that far. Remember, we did this and we, we, we overcame this. And, and this was also something that we were able to manage. And do you remember this and this and this? Yes, let's, let's move on. So, we, so far, we have, um, we, have rocked every, we have rocked every storm. So let's take this one too. Um, this so applies, memory, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, no, I didn't want, didn't want to interrupt you, but this applies to so many dimensions of life, right? How forgetfulness really creates these uh, inflection points or these kind of points of crisis in our lives when we forget, right? Uh, yeah. You mentioned the example of marriage, but it can be it can be in other things as well. I mean, I'm thinking think about how often how often our spiritual crisis is precipitated um, by forgetting, let's say, what God has done in our lives, and we are now acting as if never ever our prayers have been answered. We never have any experiences. You know, we are asking for something, and presumably there's now apparently there's no end are given to our prayers, and we act as if nothing ever happened to us, as if we are starting from, from square one. So it can ap apply to relationships, right? It can apply mm -hmm. to spirituality. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking even of my work environment, how easy it is to be to become get lost in these operations of the institutions, and every institution has its foibles and its failures and its problems and its unnecessary bureaucracy and all of that. And, and it, you can become jaded. What, what am I doing here? And then I remember very distinctly in my mind, I actually have the photo. I remember the first time I came to Andrews. I was a, a PhD student. We just came to America. And there is this, uh, there's, I don't know if you remember, there, there's a sign, there's kind of a stone. It says seminary, kind of a sign outside of the building. Mm -hmm. And I remember I put my hand on that sign and I felt as if I was touching a holy object. <laughs> and they're still mm -hmm, with me. Mm -hmm. I had long hair, you know, beard, whatever, you know. And someone took a photo of us and there I'm standing with my wife. We were young, you know, and I'm, I'm holding my hand on that. And I felt, I felt, you know, in my, in my body, the sensation of unbelievable, oh, yeah. right? And now I am here and I am... I have this immense privilege of working and being a department chair and something that I would have given anything at that point. And now I'm whining and complaining, right? And so, and so something, sometimes I think that, that memory is really the gateway to, obviously, to gratitude. In your instance, right? Grateful, being grateful mm -hmm. for, uh, for Karen. It is also, this is really a source of strength in life. I, I, how can you be grateful? I mean, you can be grateful, obviously, if you notice and perceive things in the present and all of that. But gratefulness is profoundly connected to memory. So I, that should be stress. I didn't want to interrupt you, but it kind of triggered in me that memory of me coming to Andrews and touching that, oh, yeah. that sign and, and how we take things for granted and how it's good to remember these things. Right. I mean, when we come together as friends, old friends and so on, what, what is always the highlight of any event is to the memorization of all of us. Do you remember this? Do you remember that? Right. And that, right. that's what, um, what draws us close. Um, now we're getting almost to the end of our conversation here. Um, but perhaps, uh, to, to you and, and perhaps also to the audience, obviously we have just touched some of the surfaces when it comes to memorization and so much is connected to it. Think about, um, educational setups. Think about, um, the challenges of a modern student, the challenges of a modern instructor or, or, or professor. So some of those things we want 
want to cover actually in our next conversation, um, speaking about focus, hyperfocus, flow state, some more on strategies of memorization. So um, th there, there's much still to be discussed, but we'll postpone this for our next conversation in two weeks. Perhaps we, we can just land this as we have talked about memorization now with a quote from a beautiful book i just i just got reminded about as, as we're talking namely erinnern yeah I'll, i'll translate it here in, in a second erinnern erkundungen zu einer theologischen basiskategorie it's ex exactly what you were actually referring to it's uh, it's a, a german book published in 2003 by petzl and reck and the translation is memorization explorations about a theological foundational theological category um, and the introduction goes like this for jews and christians um, faith does not have anything to do with closed truths much more it its essence it has to do with the the events of memorization um, It is not by chance that in both services, that's the, the Old Testament service, the, the Jewish service, as well as the Christian service, memorization is in its central point when you know we speak about do this as a memorization of mine. So you have a, both the, memory, the Jewish yes. as well and the Christian yes, um, uh, confessions. So, um, so I, I think it brings us also to a place of our faith commitments where memorization is not just a skill to make it well through life. It's not just a skill that brings people together and, and binds them uh, in their common past. It's also a tool, not just a tool, it's an art, not just an art. It's a way of life, so to say, to be part of a greater history that surpasses our own little life, but that connects us to the big history of this world and, and to the Christ to come and to the, the kingdom uh, that we, we are all part of and that we are Uh, building on um, so our memorization is basically the way that allows us to step into this greater flow of meaning yes. um, that the lord invites us into yes and not to insert a discordant note at the very end it is these memories these meta memories that we have communion and remembering the promises of jesus that actually help us deal with traumatic memories because memory this is something we have not talked about and at one mm -hmm. point we will talk about trauma and memory not all memories many memories are horrible and, and people need to find a way to be able to move beyond those memories of suffering yeah. abuse and all of that so perhaps the, the greatest challenge sometimes is perhaps to overcome them or forget them or be able to move past past them and then uh, so that is an aspect we have to think about and certainly one way in which we are then challenged is to situate our our memories whether they are good or bad within the broader story of the promises mm -hmm. of of christ and the promises of redemption which then helps yeah. us to both purify and heal our memories especially of wrongdoings received as Miroslav Wolf talks about and the conditions under which we can let go of these memories as, as the Jews have said right it's it, never forget what happened the Shoah and the Holocaust mm -hmm, kind of an mm -hmm, ethical mm -hmm. imperative is there as well so there's so many yeah. different dimensions of memory but I think at the very end and this is a topic for itself but I really like it the way you've connected the one of the Christian imperatives is is to allow the memory of Christ and the, the memory of redemption the, the the way or to, to Emmaus when he speaks to us mm -hmm. through through the scriptures and our hearts are burning to allow th those truths to rewire and reposition and recast memories that need to be changed as well as to amplify those good memories that we sometimes forget 
Yeah, very good. Yeah, I mean, the Bible, Old and New Testament is trauma literature. In yeah. a sense, it's, uh, it's helping us to reframe our memories. Um, very good. Looking forward to the next conversation, Ante. Wonderful. Man, this, this will be an exciting one next, next time. I mean, it, this one was an exciting one, but yeah, really looking forward. Looking forward to it too. All the best to you, Oliver. Take care. Thank you. To you too. Okay.